Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Tim Cronin. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. We are continuing our discussion about closing argument and specifically damages. And we're going to shift to uh, damages in wrongful death cases. And just kind of a reminder, four things you want to keep in mind when talking about damages in any case. Again, as John said last time, you want to try to spend at least half your time in closing, focusing on damages. You need to provide a rational basis for damages utilize the instructions, highlight the emotional harms or aspects of the damages, use memorable examples. So for death claims, let's talk about the instructions. Again, the use fair and just in Missouri, and I think it's similar as it is in most states. It's MAI 21.03. If you find in favor of plaintiffs, then you must award plaintiffs such sum as you believe will fairly and justly compensate the survivors of the decedent for any damages you believe they sustained and the survivors of the decedent are reasonably certain to sustain in the future that were caused or contributed to be caused by the fatal injury to the decedent. And then there's also instructions about defining particular categories, right, John? Yeah. And I think in a death claim in Missouri, the non-economic component is described in the instruction as consortium, companionship, comfort, instruction, guidance, counsel, training, and support. Very, very broad-based. And it really gives you a great opportunity to come up with some memorable examples of the extent of the loss. Right. It's a very broad way of describing It really gives you the ability to argue almost any way you want what the loss of another human being is close to you means and how it affects you so far and ongoing into the future. I think it's death claim more so than injury. It's tough for people to kind of wrap their heads around compensating for somebody's death. And the whole idea that you hear a lot, well, we can't bring that person back. I kind of hit that head on and close and say, look, as we discussed, there's no system to undo the harm. The law requires just compensation for the value of a life that was lost. Full justice, full and complete justice, not half. I usually have up on the screen the instruction that describes the nature of the damages, the measure of damages in a death case, what you're allowed to consider in a death claim, whether it's the death of a child, the death of a parent. The law requires you to award an amount that you believe will fairly and justly compensate for the loss, and it gives a little more guidance What I like to do is I'll take those elements from the jury instruction in the wrongful death case, specifically companionship, comfort, guidance, counsel, training, support. And what I'll do is I'll try to think of one or more memorable examples utilizing each of those categories. Okay. And, you know, I'll give you an example. I tried a case involving the death of a wife and a mother of three small children. When I argued it, I had up on the screen, you know, companionship, comfort, guidance. And first of all, you know, you've got a claim for the husband and you got a claim for each of the children. And again, I used examples of problems having a bad day, the worst day you can imagine. You come home, you feel like the whole world's against you. Who do you talk to? Well, it's your wife, it's your spouse, it's your husband. Being able to come in when you think the whole world's against you and have somebody there to talk to, somebody who's going to actually listen to you, somebody that's going to give you a hug and say, don't worry, we'll get through this, this will be okay. Missing that, you know, what is that worth? Again, examples. That might be one example of comfort, okay? Claim of a child for loss of a mother. 
Emerson had a good quote, men are what their mothers made of them. I mean, I've heard the saying or the quote, there's no greater bond in the universe between a mother and her child. You could be in that prison cell and ain't nobody coming to see you other than mom. Yeah. Okay. Your mother, for most of us, if you're lucky, your mother is your anchor, your real anchor in life. But to a small child, I mean, my God, could you imagine a small child losing their mother? That is their entire universe. And give examples of things their mom won't be there to help them through. Kindergarten, first day of school, not making the soccer team your first date, not being invited to the big party, a prom night, wedding day, all of those things. In our last session, we're talking about listen to your client and spend some time with them. And I think it's especially true in a death case. I feel bad about this to this day, but I represented parents who lost their son in an accident. Dad handled it, I thought, a little bit better emotionally than mom. Mom could barely speak about it. And that was from the time I first met her till the time the case was over. Dad was uh, a little more stoic about it, very much more, and didn't really show his feelings, although I didn't spend enough time talking to him about it. I did attend his deposition, and we prepped for the deposition, and it was a very difficult time for mom to get through, and dad was holding up very well, and uh, the other lawyer asked him if he'd ever visited his son's grave, and without missing a beat, he said, yes, sir, every day. I remember that case. Yeah. And so it just about, you know. Defense counsel you know, didn't know what to ask next. Yeah. And I'm telling you, my eyes are watering now just thinking about it. But there's no greater loss in the world than losing somebody that you love. How you present that is going to depend on the facts of the case. But spend some time with your client. You'll figure out how to present it. I have two friends who've lost children in the last 15 years. One was uh, five years ago and one was 15 years ago. And, and I asked the, the friend who lost his son 15 years ago, how often do you think about him? And he said, every hour, you know, it's like, you don't stop. It's never, about him. right? It's yeah, never, no and the same loss. thing for my friend yeah. five years ago, it was a New Year's Eve drunken driving accident. And she is crisscrossing the country, leaving symbols of her son everywhere across the United States. It's a constant, constant thing. And thank God for everybody who has not lost a kid. When you hear these stories, you know, the pain never goes away. Yeah. You know, and I think not just in death cases, but spend time with your client, as we said on the injury cases, and it doesn't need to be 15 examples, doesn't need to be five examples, but one or two good examples of how what happened has affected them. The whole person has affected them emotionally, physically. You know, I had a case with a professional boxer who was injured. He suffered a brain injury. He was in his early 20s, 21 or 22. He was a rising star. I was trying to think of how do I present all of this? You know, how do I present it to the jury in a limited amount of time? They heard the evidence and I watched the interactions between his mother and him, you know, watched how she had to do everything for him. And at the end of the case and close. He's a world-class athlete who got up at 5.30 every morning, yeah, right. did five mile run and, you know, was in better shape than, you know, almost anybody in the world. Yeah. And at trial, what I did is I had a shoe, Yeah, a shoe and said he couldn't tie his shoe now his this morning his at shoes. my office. His mother bends down and ties his shoes. Enough said. Yeah. Again, it's the emotional, it's the life impact, the emotional impact that these injuries have caused. And that's really what you need to work on. And again, I'm not diminishing, you know, having back pain every day. I'm not diminishing having limit in terms of how far you can walk or bend or stretch or whatever. But in my experience, in my view, it's the emotional impact that is the greatest loss. It's the greatest harm in the vast majority of these cases. Sometimes we have cases where the injury might prevent them from doing one type of job or work, but they're qualified to do another. And again, you know, how do you handle that, Tim? 
often with the particular expert who's talking about it. The other side has a voc rehab expert, or even you have a voc rehab expert who's saying, yeah, well, they can't do that anymore, but they can do this job and this job and ask, why did you decide to do what you do for a living? Yeah, or in Vordire. Those are yeah. great questions in Vordire. Yeah. Does yeah. anybody love their job? Right. Pick a teacher on the panel and say, how long have you been teaching? Do yeah. you enjoy that? Do you do that right. for the money? Right. Is there, <laughs> because is there any, we don't compensate right. you enough. Right. Is there anything else other than what you're doing? What is there anything you'd rather be doing? And no. And why? Because I chose to do that. And, and how I, long did you work right. in your life to be able to do that? So I had a case with a speech pathologist who was working at a local high school, or I think it was a grade school, and she ended up getting an injury to her jaw or chin and some complications developed, and she really couldn't work anymore as a speech pathologist. And the defense hired a voc rehab expert who, she had a PhD, very highly educated, very motivated, and she just chose to spend time with the kids doing the speech therapy. And their position in the case was, well, as far as wage loss, she could get a job making two or three times what she was making earlier. And, you know, that was my response in the case. You know, I asked, actually had the voc rehab expert on the stand, the defendants, and all I did was ask him about how much he loved his job and uh, the training he went through to try to become a voc rehab. What's the thing he enjoys most about it? What gives him the greatest satisfaction? And he knew where I was going and was kind of smiling halfway through. And I said, is there anything else you'd rather be doing? And he said, no, sir. And then finally, I think punitive damages, to a certain extent, it's an easier argument because it's not as subjective. It has a little more objectivity to it in terms of the instruction, whether it's an instruction from Missouri or other states. Typically, the jury is told, look, you need to think about the amount, and the amount needs to be an amount that's sufficient to deter the defendant and others, in Missouri, defendant and others, to punish and deter and that really gives you, I think, a floor in a yeah. lot of cases. And I mean, this really allows you to get almost get into golden rule things. I mean, not exactly, but you really get to get relate to the jury a little bit more when you're talking about punitives. Because as we say, and I stole this from an old case of yours, Dorman, your $105 million verdict back from 2000 or 2001, where you said, look, what are punitive damages? Punitive damages are stopping damages. That's what they're for. They're for stopping. And the people who get to decide right now if this is going to stop is you. And you get to wake up tomorrow and look in the mirror and think about what you did to stop this. And you'll get to think about that every day of your life, whether you did enough to stop this or not. Yeah. And I even said, I think if you get up in the morning and you're reading the paper or looking at the news and you see that the same thing happened with the same product, Hopefully, you can look at yourself in the mirror and say, well, I did everything I could do to stop this. And just creative it. ways to uh, different ways to express that this is their opportunity to send a message. And that's going to depend. That amount is going to depend ex almost exclusively on the size of the defendant. Size of the defendant and the egregiousness of yeah, the conduct right. in combination. So with all of that said, what I thought I'd do is give an example of a closing argument in a death case that I did recently, just to kind of bring some of these thoughts together. It's not a punitive damages case, so that won't be part of it. Closing argument was, there was only three days of evidence, so closing argument was a little bit shorter, so usually I would spend a little bit more time than I'm probably gonna spend here. But just to kind of tie some of these thoughts together and to lay the groundwork, this was a trucking case and it involved the death of a five-year-old. And so with that background, I'll start with a transition from all the discussion I had about liability into when I moved into damages. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not complicated. 
a professional truck driver for this trucking company drove into a concrete embankment. That should never happen. And as a result, a five-year-old little girl is dead. And then I put a picture up of May, who was the five-year-old little girl who passed in the incident. It's time now to compensate for this girl's life. That's what today is for. I think we could all feel the weight of the loss when her mom, Melissa, testified and her dad, Jay, testified. You heard what kind of person May was and could have been, how they all described her. Rambunctious, smart, proud, a leader, <laughs> the boss, loving, positive, independent, boisterous, sassy. And every person who took the stand said she was special. Now I want to pull up the jury instruction for you. And I went through the jury instruction, listing the next of kin and pointing out who's in there and who's not for all the members of her family who were entitled as beneficiaries to get a part of the damages and explained, it'll be up to the court to decide how any verdict would be divided amongst the family based on the same evidence you've heard here. So the judge knows what you know about who had a closer relationship with her or not, but we have to list all of them. I want to focus on their household. She had three full siblings who lived and were raised with her, Caitlin, Willow, and Jimmy. They lost that sibling for the rest of their lives, just like her mom and her dad did. I personally can't imagine losing a child or a sibling. I can't imagine a worse loss. The kids are struggling with it. One of them asked why God has taken everything away from me when they lost their sister. This is the kind of grief and emotion that never really disappears. You carry it with you for the rest of your life. The pain doesn't go away. You wake up every morning realizing she's gone. Reminded daily during good experiences and bad that she's not there to share them with you and carry them with you. Melissa, her mom, said May was her heart, and it's been ripped out. I want to go over the damages instruction explaining to you what you need to consider and coming up with a fair and just damages number. It talks about things like loss of society, meaning the lost relationship for the rest of their lives, loss of support, loss of love shared, affection, care, attention, companionship, guidance and comfort, grief and sorrow. We're not asking for conscious pain and suffering in this case because thank God we didn't hear about her being conscious. We presented testimony of how she was injured and what happened after because we had to prove what caused her death and what the family still has to live with about how she died. I want to show you pictures of her siblings who've lost their sister for the rest of their lives. These kids were best friends. They spent all their time together. What a future her family has missed with her. A lifetime of experiences that are gone. Birthday parties. Getting to see little May start first grade. When she's eight, maybe she wants to be a mermaid for Halloween. At 10, maybe she wants to drive the lawnmower in her new cowboy boots. A 13-year-old who wants a cell phone because her big sisters already have one. A 16-year-old who still bosses her big brother around. High school graduation, going off to school. Calling home to ask for money, but really just wants to talk to her mom. A 22-year-old who finds her first real job. A young woman in her 20s who can't decide which sibling to ask to stand up at her wedding, so she asks them all. Sharing the birth of her first child together. Asking them all over to see her first house after saving for years. A 40-year-old supporting her brother and sisters, and them her, 
when they lose their parents, watching their own kids play together, a 55-year-old meeting her first grandchild, a 65-year-old hoping to retire and wondering how her sisters did it a few years before, an 80-year-old grateful for her family and telling the same stories over and over again about how great it was as kids together, memories that will never be made, stories never told, milestones will never be reached and shared. What's the value of this five-year-old life to them? I wish you could wave your hands and bring her back. That you could send her bursting through the doors of your deliberation room to jump into their arms, hug her brother and sisters and her parents, hold their hands with tears of joy, and they could walk out of here like it never happened. Give all those lost years back. But you can't. So what do you do to put on the other side of a scale to balance that? I said some numbers during jury selection that defense counsel made fun of. They were big. I know. 20 to $25 million. I don't know if that's too much or too little. I really don't. It's for you to decide. Let me pull up the verdict form. If you find for the plaintiff, here's where you fill out damages. I have to explain to you that these top numbers and bottom numbers have to match. The middle lines have to add up to that total. So make sure to do your math right. Folks, paintings get sold for $65 million, racehorses for 25. CEOs make $100 million bonuses some years after their companies have to be bailed out by the government. Nobody seems to bat an eye. What's more special and unique to a family than its youngest child, one with her whole life in front of her? How special and unique is that to them? We value life above all else. The question is, how will you value hers? I'm glad I don't have to decide and tell this family what May's life was worth to them. To me, for everything lost for 70 to 80 years, those numbers I mentioned don't seem adequate, but that's up to you. Maybe you think 10 is closer. Maybe you think it's two to three times that. $250,000 that the defendant has suggested in this case is a callous insult. If what was destroyed in this crash was a painting of a young girl by a master artist with a twinkle in her eye worth $10 million, you'd know what to write down. How can a painting of a little girl be worth more than a real little girl? A wife who loses a husband is called a widow. A child who loses a parent is called an orphan. There's no word for a parent who loses a child or a child who loses a young sibling. There's no words for those things. That's how awful the loss is. There's no such thing as a big verdict or a small verdict, only a just verdict. We're not asking for sympathy. We're asking for justice. And half justice or quarter justice is no justice. I just ask that you look into your hearts, talk about it with each other, and whatever you decide will be right. Today's the two-year anniversary of May's death. I can't think of a better day to tell this family what her life was worth. Thank you. And we thank you for joining us for another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Tim Cronin. I'm Eric Peeth. I'm John Simon. We'll see you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. Subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.